My name is Nicholas Danforth, and I'm an editor at War on the Rocks. You are listening to The Warcast, the members-only podcast for what you need to know now. This week, the Financial Times reported that the Department of Defense was planning to withdraw the F-15s currently stationed on Okinawa Island. Here to tell us what this means is Becca Wasser. Becca is Senior Fellow in the Defense Program and Lead of the Gaming Lab at the Center for a New American Security. Welcome to The Warcast. Thanks so much for having me, Nick. So why is this happening, and what are the implications? Oof, okay, where to begin? So I think there's a few different things that are going on. You know, there's been a bit of an uproar over the decision for the of the Air Force to retire two squadrons of F-15s that have been permanently based in Okinawa. Um, part of this is now they're shifting to what is referred to as a rotational heel-to-toe presence Uh, which is probably going to be fifth generation fighters F-22s. And those are also going to be uh, located in Okinawa in the first island chain. Um, But I think it's worth mentioning that there's been a bit of dissatisfaction about this move, which happened to occur on the eve of the uh, release of the unclassified national defense strategy. And part of this is because the national defense strategy prioritizes high-end conventional deterrence to get at the China challenge in the Indo-Pacific region. But you know, there's sort of a difference between words and reality, where the United States has underinvested in the posture uh, that is required to do this in the Asia-Pacific. So uh, this shift to rotational presence really is emblematic of this difference between rhetoric and reality when it comes to the Indo-Pacific. But I think it's worth broadening the aperture and just sort of looking at things in a little bit of a bigger context. And so uh, I want to raise a few things. So first is looking at this retirement of the F-15s, right? This fits with this broader strategy that the U.S. Air Force has of divest to invest, right? Trying to retire older platforms um, in order to field newer and more effective platforms for the future challenges that uh, the U.S. Air Force might face. So this is why we're seeing more F-35 deployments. This is why we're trying, we see the Air Force trying to recoup resources to invest in future capabilities like NGAD. Um, And then the next thing that I want to raise is this issue of survivability, right? And particularly the question of of survivability of U.S. assets in the first island chain. Right. So this very much includes U.S. forces that are at bases like Kadena Air Base in Okinawa. You know, these are well within range of uh, China's ballistic and cruise missiles. And frankly, they're in some of the worst threat rings. Um, You know, as part of my day job, I do a lot of wargaming and uh, a lot of wargaming of uh, potential China-U.S. conflict uh, over Taiwan. Um, and one of the first things that you know we end up seeing in a lot of the war games that I do is that the red team, you know, the folks who are representing China, um, they uh, usually attack U.S. forces and bases in Japan in order to curb U.S. ability to combat, uh, to generate combat power and, in particular, air power over the Taiwan Strait as they're trying to do an amphibious invasion of Taiwan. And so if you kind of take what that means, it means that in a potential conflict with China, 
you know, Beijing may have a first strike incentive um, and that bases like Kadena Air Base in Okinawa, it's a sitting duck, right? The U.S. has it's underinvested in some of the passive and active air defenses that it would need for bases, hardening bases. You know, these are things that, frankly, we've seen written about in War on the Rocks. My colleague Stacey Pettyjohn has written for you guys on that. Um, other folks like Jacob Hyman Rand have done some fantastic work looking at this problem. But it means that, you know, aircraft like F-15s would be parked on runways um, or even in hangars or frankly, even in hardened air shelters, you know, they're going to be targeted, they're going to be hit, and they're likely to be destroyed. And so when you look at that, it means that the forces aren't survivable. And in order to have a combat credible force that can effectively contribute to deterrence in the Indo-Pacific, it needs to be survivable. So this is what we've seen in the latest national defense strategy. They're kind of doubling down on this idea of building a survivable future force. And this emphasis on survivability has more currently manifested in different operational concepts. And a lot of these are predicated on dispersal. And so for the Air Force, you have this concept, uh, this operational concept of agile combat employment. And so it's supposed to see more flexible air forces operating from bases and, you know, in particular, austere air bases that are supposed to be further outside of some of the worst uh, threat rings. And this doesn't necessarily mean that dispersal and permanent forces are incompatible, but there is a little bit of tension between permanent basing and the more flexible forces that you might need for some of the distributed operations that are part of future warfighting concepts. And I think this is one of the reasons why we're seeing uh, rotational forces being emphasized. So tell us more about that. How does rotational basing fit into this more broadly? Yeah, so here they're talking a lot about heel-to-toe rotations, which normally when we hear heel-to-toe rotations, we think, uh, frankly, about U.S. Uh, Army forces, because this is something that they've really sort of piloted and drove home in Europe uh, prior to the most recent tensions. But it's something that the Air Force does, too. And so it means that there are usually these shorter deployments, uh, and these can range from, you know, a few months to six months. But the idea is that there should be no gaps in between the forces that come forward and those that relieve them. And it's supposed to get around some of the uh, additional requirements that are uh, put in place for permanent forces. Um, for a lot of permanent forces, this means that, you know, for some of those active duty stations, families can come with, which means that you've got additional infrastructure like schools, hospitals, whatnot. So it's supposed to sort of relieve some of the burdens and the costs more generally. And so when we look at this uh, kind of debate between permanent forces and rotational forces, it's a debate over value and cost. And some of this is no kidding financial cost, um, but I'm not a cost analyst, so we're not gonna get into that. So I think it's more a question here of deterrent value and readiness cost. So um, on readiness, there's some fierce debates over whether rotational forces are more or less ready. 
than permanent forces. And, you know, I'll give credit to where it's due. I actually think that the Department of Defense and some of the services have done a lot of hard work in recent years to try and ensure that rotational forces can retain readiness and in some cases gain readiness. Um, and so in some cases, you've actually seen heel to toe rotations building greater readiness than some of their, uh, you know, permanent force analogs. Um, and, you know, something that's kind of gone alongside this is the development of new force generation models. Uh, the Air Force has developed a new force generation model, which is really emphasizing building high end readiness, right? Building a force that is ready to fight against a near peer adversary like China. Um, and this is something that they've been trying to do, keeping in mind the more expeditionary and dispersal basing concepts that it has, knowing that it needs to have slightly more flexible forces that aren't going to be wedded to a single base. Um, but for me, the readiness problem isn't so much of you know permanent versus rotational forces, but it's about discipline or the lack thereof in requests for forces and the global force management system that creates this sort of high, you know, operational tempo that has resulted in rotational forces actually having decreased readiness. We saw this a lot with requests for forces in the CENTCOM AOR over the past few years. Um, and, you know, this is something that is still an issue. And so there's been a new, um, initiative within the department of trying to uh, develop better ways of measuring readiness and to have better informed assessments of readiness levels and ensuring that those have greater alignment to NDS priorities. So all of this, it's called strategic readiness. It's trying to create more discipline in the system. Um, and that means that sometimes you're going to need to have the Pentagon pushing back against the COCOMs, back against ally and partner requests, and at times sort of back against itself. And that feels really uncomfortable for the department because it's not something that they've done. Um, and then there's the question of deterrence value, right? Uh, there's a lot of discussion that permanent forces, uh, sorry, that rotational forces don't contribute to deterrence as much as uh, permanent forces. And that's what I was going to ask about, because so much of the criticism of this has been about the signal that it sends to China and the way that plays into our deterrence. Absolutely. So if the United States wants to deter China by denial, which the latest NDS doubles down on, um, it needs to have forward forces that can shift the balance of power at a moment's notice and needs to have sufficient combat power to make China believe that the United States can deny Beijing its objective, whether this is Taiwan or, you know, another scenario or contingency. And so that means that forces need to be there. Um, and that in some ways only works if rotational forces are heel to toe, right? Because in some ways you are creating that consistent presence, but it needs to be consistent. And that is where I think the trick is because gaps in presence in theory, could provide uh, Beijing with a window of where it believes it could have the opportunity to aggress and get away with it. What the United States needs to do is make sure that in China's calculus, it doesn't feel as though it could, you know, make a move on Taiwan or another, uh, you know, feature somewhere in the East or South China Sea and be able to be successful. 
And then, you know, the second part, which you rightfully raised is credibility, right? China needs to believe that the United States could use force to deny their aims. And so it needs to have the credibility that the U.S. would use force, but it also needs to have the credibility in U.S. commitments to allies and partners like Japan. So um, one can imagine that, uh, you know, parts of the Japanese government are probably not so pleased with this latest move from Okinawa because perhaps they're uh, interpreting the rotational presence as a reduced commitment, right? It seems like a downgrade. But again, that doesn't necessarily need to be the case. If there's consistency in the rotational deployments, it actually could continue to, uh, you know, contribute to deterrence. I mean, I'm not of the school of thought that is sort of wedded to presence. I think that there are different ways in which you can create presence that doesn't have to be permanent presence. I think actually having more flexible uh, forces, more flexible posture allows you to enhance deterrence in different ways. Um, and I'm actually currently doing a little bit of work on this where I'm looking at how the United States can uh, better use a flexible peacetime posture in the Indo-Pacific to strengthen deterrence. So ultimately, I'm of the mindset that it is imminently doable and that permanent presence isn't the only way to deter, but that does require, frankly, the U.S. military changing sort of how it's traditionally done business. Thank you so much for joining us on The Warcast. Yeah, thanks so much for having me.